Welcome to Prevention Is Now. I'm Deb Bonner, the preventionist and community advocate for Prairie Center Against Sexual Assault in Springfield, Illinois. Joining me again today is Dr. Alan Berkowitz as we continue our discussion about the social norms approach to sexual violence prevention. And just to refresh everyone's memory, Dr. Berkowitz is an independent consultant working with colleges, universities, public health agencies, military organizations, and communities to design programs that address health and social justice issues such as sexual violence. He developed one of the first rate prevention programs for men in the United States at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, and he is an expert on the development of the social norms theory. He's been published multiple times and currently is working on the social norms approach as a strategy to prevent violence perpetrated by men and boys, a review of the literature with several of his colleagues. Dr. Berkowitz, thank you again for joining us. Now, in our last episode, just to bring everybody back up to speed, we talked a lot about theory and how bystander intervention is another promising form of primary prevention and how the social norms approach works almost synergistically to create a comprehensive prevention plan. Now, let's talk a little bit more about implementing. So let's say a college uh, implements bystander intervention and, and, and then they want to also add in changing the social norms. I know... It can be a little bit frustrating on our end as people who provide training that a lot of times uh, institutions kind of see this as a one and done. It's like, okay, we've done this. We can check off the box for uh, sexual violence prevention and now we can move on. But these things don't last forever without reinforcement, correct? Correct. Solving these problems requires sustained and ongoing effort and resources and multiple simultaneous interventions. There's no one thing. And unfortunately, our leaders and administrators are so overwhelmed with so many problems, and they're so overwhelmed with so many financial demands that they tend to not give us the time, attention, and resources we need to really engage in a sustained, long-term, comprehensive effort. The good news is that we know that if we do engage in a sustained, comprehensive, long-term, and science-based effort, that we can dramatically reduce this problem. Unfortunately, very often, we're not given the resources to do that, so we have to be creative and efficient and make use of what we have. And as far as making use of what we have, almost all of us are doing group educational programs, and we can collect data from those groups. For instance, would you respect a a man or a classmate who's intervened to prevent a sexual assault? Do you think most other guys in your class would respect a man? Or, you know, do you, you, how do you feel when guys trust our girls? We can give a survey to the group that we're giving a program to, either before the workshop or at the beginning of the workshop, Then we can have a conversation in the workshop saying, most of us told you this, but most of you thought this. But in fact, most of you thought this. What do you think is going on? Most of you guys would respect someone who stepped in, but most of you thought most of you wouldn't respect someone. How do you explain that? So we can bring what we call normative feedback into all the things we're doing, and we could tell our audiences the truth about each other in a way that empowers them to do what we're hoping they will do. And also, another reason why this works and is advised is because the strongest influence on human behavior is our peer group, who we hang out with, who we care about, who we respect. 
even if we consider all the biological, psychological, personality, family, cultural, et cetera, et cetera, influences. All those things might determine who we hang out with, but in the end, the people who have the biggest influence on what we do are the people we hang out with. So not knowing the truth about the people we hang out with is very problematic because we are making decisions based on incorrect information. So let's talk a little bit about actually getting into the implementation of a, a social norms approach. You said it's complicated and expensive and, and challenging. So where do we start with this to start changing those norms and preventing sexual violence? And I don't want to overstate the difficulty. It requires a certain skill set, but it could actually be more efficient from a financial point of view than many other things we're doing. So first of all, we have to have good data. So we can ask ourselves the question, what do I want to discourage or prevent? We already know the answer to that. That's why we're here. We want to prevent sexual harassment, sexual assault, mistreatment of women, mistreatment of other groups. But we very rarely ask the question, what do I want to encourage? So we ask, what do we want to encourage? We want people to not be bystanders. We want people to step in. We want people to express their discomfort with certain behaviors. Actually, I'll give you an interesting example from Illinois. We were designing a social norms campaign in a high school, Vernon Hills High School near Chicago. We wanted to give messages about why young people don't drink that were positive messages. And all of the national surveys we looked at only asked negative questions. I don't want to drink because this bad thing would happen, this bad thing happened, this bad thing would happen. So we devised a set of positive questions, like a positive reasons, like my relationship with my parents is very important to me and I wouldn't want to disappoint them. So then we could have a poster that said, I'm making up the number, but it's approximate 87% of Vernon Hill High School students don't drink alcohol because they care about their relationship with their parents. So that's a great message as opposed to I don't want to vomit and get sick. So um, we need to sit down and ask ourselves, what do we want to encourage, support, or enhance? Obviously, a lot of that has to do with our theme of bystander intervention. Then we need to design a survey that will give us that data. And usually we ask people about what they think or do and what they think other people think or do so we can measure the misperception because if there's no misperception, there's nothing to correct. If there's a bigger misperception, we can focus on that variable, that attitude, that behavior that is misperceived because we know that by correcting the misperception, we will encourage people to do what they already want to do, which is step in and be an active bystander and do something. So you can collect data, as I said, in a classroom before you do a workshop, or you can give data to a whole school or a whole community. But you want to collect data that is positive. We say it needs to be positive, inclusive, and empowering which means it gives you permission to do something. Once we have our data, it depends what we want to do with it. If we want to use it in a small group, we have a conversation. We say, how come you thought this, but you thought this? What is the reason? How do you feel knowing that most people would respect you if you stepped in? If you want to do a media campaign, it's more complicated because people won't believe the data. 
if you put up a poster in most Illinois high schools saying that most high school kids don't drink, any student that has a good relationship with you will tell you that you don't know what you're talking about, that you haven't been at the parties, that you haven't seen all the drinking, and that people lied on the survey for a variety of reasons. So you have to train them to say, well, go to a party next time and don't tell me anything about who's there, but tell me how many people were drinking, how many people were drinking but didn't get drunk, and how many people got drunk. Now, if Alan and Deborah get drunk and make fools of themselves, that's what everyone will talk about. They'll say, oh, that was such a wild party. Alan and Deborah were dancing on the table. You couldn't believe, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so they will make it seem like it was everyone was out of control because you and I were out of control. So you have to train them to look at it again and say, well, they were out of control. They were. I saw that. They were foolish. But most of the people I saw either weren't drinking or weren't drunk. So it really was an okay party. Actually, let me give you a great example. This is when I was at Vernon Hills, so this is an Illinois example. We were presenting the data in the high school to the teachers. And as I was giving my presentation, a woman said, I don't believe you. <laughs> and I've learned to not get defensive or upset. I learned to expect. We expect people to not believe our data. I said, please tell me why. I'm interested to know. She said, I'm the chair of the school board. And every weekend I get called up in the middle of the night on Friday and Saturday and Sunday about out-of-control parties that the police are having to break up. And I don't see how this can be true. So I said, okay, let's work this through. Let's look at your data and my data. How many parties on a typical weekend? Okay, four parties. How many people at a party? 30? Okay, let's say 40. Let's say 50. Four parties a weekend, 50 kids. Let's pretend all the kids at those parties are drunk, even though that's probably exaggerated. 200 kids are drunk every weekend. How many kids in your school? 1,800. There you go. So, of course, if you're the school board president, you're going to have a lot of headaches, and you're going to hear all the worst. You're going to hear all the bad stories. You're going to hear all the problems. But that doesn't mean most students are engaging in the problems. Maybe many students didn't even go to the parties because they heard there was going to be alcohol or pot or something else there. So... It's very easy to draw the wrong conclusion from the more visible negative behavior. The case of sexual assault is a little more challenging because unlike alcohol, the problem is more hidden. And because so many victims do not report, we may have an underestimation of the problem of sexual assault. But when we talk about bystander behavior in relation to the problems that precede a sexual assault, such as negative language, such as um, hostility towards women, such as sexual objectification of women and men, then we may have an overestimation of those behaviors. Just like most boys in a high school don't like boys trash-talking girls, but most boys think that most boys so. The overestimation in this case isn't around the statistics for violence against women. The overestimation is around the attitudes and behaviors that lead to violence against women. And by the way, we want to acknowledge that any vulnerable group, by nature of their vulnerability, is more likely to experience sexual violence. So that means gay, lesbians, and bisexuals are experience more sexual violence than straight people. Trans 
right now is one of the highest groups, people of color, especially Native Americans, immigrants, poor people. So even though we're primarily talking about male-on-female violence, we want to acknowledge that vulnerability is associated with victimization, and there are many forms of vulnerability that have to do with race, gender expression, sexual orientation, immigration status, poverty, etc. And we're we're talking about all of those. Now, how do you, as you're creating your messages, and, and we're trying to show that actually more people feel and believe the way that we do than don't, but if you look at the media, for example, I mean, rape culture is pervasive, and it's, you know, whether it's in a sitcom, or it's in a video game, or it's in a meme, how, how do we overcome all that negativity with our positivity? That's a great question, and it's true that for the media, good news is not as newsworthy as bad news. So if a famous person is accused of sexual assault and that person feels falsely accused, it goes on the front page. But all the all the other rapes that took place over the weekend are in the police slaughter on the seventh page buried in a little box in the bottom corner. So the media is part of the problem of fostering the misperception. And while there are strategies to influence the media, what's important to know in this case is people are more influenced by their peer group than the media. So a young person who doesn't have friends and goes home from school every day and spends time on the internet or watching shows or YouTube, that person is saturated by the media and that person does not have a countervailing influence. But most of us have relationships with people who we care about, and when the relationships with people who we care about provide us with more positive influence than the media, that countervails the influence of the media. So even when we can't change the media, we can overcome the negative influence of the media with the positive influence of peers and community members and people that we care about. And as we're saying throughout this conversation, the positive influence is hidden. The positive norm is invisible. The discomfort is invisible. So we have to make that visible. So as we're implementing a sexual violence prevention program, whether it's at a place of work, a college, a high school, wherever, we want to use bystander intervention and social norms change. Do you implement one and then the other, or should they be implemented at the same time? That's really a strategy question that there isn't one answer to. The first comment I would make is, Many successful programs that have been shown to work do not keep up with the state of the art or the state of the science. So if you look at bullying prevention, as well as bystander intervention, there are many programs that have been shown to reduce bullying and to facilitate bystanders to intervene. And those programs do not incorporate norms correction or social norms marketing because that came later. So it's important as practitioners that we use all the tools available to us, which in my view means using norms correction and bystander intervention. Now, how you do that is strategic. Maybe you want to do a media campaign first 
and kind of get people thinking about the issue and realizing that other people care and that most people want to do something. And then say, we know that you all want to do something, so here we're giving a workshop to the community next weekend. And then you have a, a, a bystander workshop. That's really a strategic question. The important conclusion that we want our listeners to go away with is that it's better to do both together than either alone and that it's not enough to do a social norms intervention. Now, here's an interesting difference because each issue is different. We can do a social norms intervention with alcohol and reduce alcohol use only by doing a social norms media campaign and by training the teachers and the coaches or the community members to talk about why it's really true that most kids don't drink, even though you think most kids drink, whatever. Sexual violence is different because alcohol, I'm predominantly doing something that hurts myself that I can change. In sexual violence, I'm doing something that hurts someone else. So it's not enough to only have a social norms campaign. We need to have the bystanders step in, and we need to give bystanders the skills to step in, which means we need to follow or combine our social norms feedback with skills training to intervene in an indirect way, in a way that distracts, in a way that has a conversation, and sometimes in a way that confronts. I'm going back to the scenario you offered. As I said, her girlfriends can invite her to go to the bathroom. His friends could say his car is being towed. His friends could say his friend is in a fight in the other room. Someone can walk up to them and spill beer on them by, quote, accident. There's many creative things that people could do to disrupt a situation including verbally, it can be very indirect. Once I was, when I was traveling, I was in a, a supermarket and there was a very disgusting domestic violence scenario going on where the, the man was so vile in the way he was talking to the female that it made me cringe. And I thought, what am I going to do? Like, I'm in a strange place. I don't know anyone. I don't know these people. I don't want to cause a fight. I don't want him to retaliate against her. And they were standing by the watermelon. So I went up to him and I said, excuse me, I, I might sound really stupid, but how do you know if a watermelon is ripe? <laughs> and so he looked at me and we talked about ripe watermelons and I got, a, I got a few sympathetic glances into her. And then I thanked him and then I pretended I was buying a watermelon. So, you know, that's not going to change a pattern of abuse in a relationship, but that's something you can do right then. You see a parent behaving abusive towards a child in the supermarket. And you could pretend that you want to buy dry cereal because they're standing in front of the dry cereal. And you could say, excuse me, I, I'm sorry to disturb you, but I need something behind you. And then you could say, are you having a bad day? Or I remember going shopping when my kids were little. It can be a little of a challenge. You don't want to say anything that makes a child feel bad. But there's many things you could do, even as a stranger, to change what is happening. So anytime we talk about bystander intervention, we talk about skills building and skills practice, and that may differ for different people. That may differ by community. It may differ by culture. It may differ by faith tradition. There may be certain people that are very comfortable being confrontational. In certain cultures, you don't look an older person in, in the eyes. So how are you going to intervene in that situation? So we have to be very adaptable and teach a range of intervention skills and 
Our desire from this podcast is that you incorporate into bystander intervention some kind of social norms marketing or what we call small group norms correction, where you facilitate bystander intervention by letting people know that other people are concerned as well. And I think when you look at some of the programs, like, for example, Coaching Boys into Men, which was one we had mentioned at the beginning, they really do focus a lot on that social norms change where they they have the male athletes in a very small group, you know, their team where they have a lot of support and that they do start challenging each other to think in these different ways. Right. So if you take Coaching Boys into Men as an example, they're using a state-of-the-art best practice, which is to have small group conversations where boys listen to each other and hear from each other. So they're not doing a formal social norms intervention. They're not collecting data in a survey and then saying, you guys told us this, but this. They're doing it indirectly because by the by having the boys listen to each other with the presence of a good facilitator, they're finding out that most boys don't like it when boys take advantage of girls or when boys use certain language towards girls or when boys brag about their sexual exploits or when boys talk about girls' bodies in detail. So a good intervention surfaces the true norm, even if it's not utilizing the technique of the social norms approach. And I would argue that coaching boys into men as only one example would be even better if they formally incorporated norms correction into what they were doing, because that's partly why what they're doing is working, is the boys are finding out about each other. So this is a way to help them find out about each other quicker and to have an interesting conversation about why they don't know the truth about each other. So I, especially as we're talking with uh, younger students, I mean, doing that social norms, especially reaching out through social media, is going to be so critical because that's where a lot of these uh, kids live. And unfortunately, especially with some of the younger kids, because I know when my daughter was younger, she got a lot of her information from her peers and from social media and from the media in general. And as we've said before, a lot of times that's just not right. So it's a challenge. And if you talk to your daughter, so one of the things we do in a social norms campaign in a public school is train the parents how to talk to their children about what the children think is happening. Because what our children do is they will repeat the misperception to us. They'll say, oh, mom, you don't know everyone, blah, blah. And then you have to say, well, how do you know everyone? Do you know anyone that doesn't, blah, blah. In other words, we need to teach our children and our youth to think critically about the assumptions they're making about each other. And it's also true about us adults. I mean, even if we look at the political situation now, which is horribly polarized or seems horribly polarized, It turns out that there's a very large middle ground where most people agree on many things, but we don't talk about them. So it seems like we're at each other's throats. We don't talk about what we agree about, what we have in common, what we share, what we believe in. So it's partly how you frame the issue. And we live in a culture that one social psychologist calls an argument culture. So if you have a late night talk show and you have an expert on the Holocaust, you invite in a Holocaust denier and you have a debate as if those two points of view are equal. Those two points of view are not equal. One is supported by fact and one is not. So 
if we keep thinking in terms of polarities or opposites or disagreements or extremes, we create a culture that allows these problems to happen as opposed to focusing on the healthy majority that wants to do the right thing, that cares, and that is in agreement with other people's desire to do the right thing. All right. Well, it sounds like from what we've been saying, it's not an easy solution, but the good news is is there's apparently several strategies to actually get us there as long as we stick with the facts and try and stay positive. Right, and to educate ourselves, take advantage of the literature and the technical resources and the training opportunities that are available and to realize that there is no easy solution. Just um, in closing, when I was consulting for the state of Illinois for Prevention First, and and Prevention First was offering different prevention approaches to uh, public health departments, they realized they had to require that these public health department staff went to a training in the social norms approach before they could apply for a grant to get money to do the social norms approach. So we really have to take responsibility as professionals to train ourselves to do what we're trying to do and know what we're trying to do and how to do it and to have the resources to help us get through the challenges. And then we will have a much, much greater chance of being successful. Real quickly, uh, off the top of your head, if somebody wants to find out more about the social norms approach and changing social norms, are do you have some good resources people could go check out if they wanted to find sure. out so more? So there's, um, there's a national center for the social norms approach, which is at Michigan State. I think it's socialnorm.org. And they have very good resources on their website. I obviously have resources on my website that is more what I've written, and I'm only one of the experts in the field. There are many manuals and how-to guides that have been written that are probably available at socialnorm.org. All right. Well, Dr. Berkowitz, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Totally my pleasure, and thank you for asking me. This has been Prevention Is Now. I'm Deb Bonner, preventionist and community advocate for Prairie Center Against Sexual Assault. If you'd like more information on this program, you may call our offices at 217-744-2560 or send me an email requesting more information at dbonner at prairiecasa.org. Prairie Center Against Sexual Assault supports children and adult survivors of sexual violence through counseling and legal and medical advocacy in 11 central Illinois counties. We also offer bystander intervention training with bringing in the bystander and and coaching boys into men, and we also offer sexual harassment prevention training for businesses and organizations in our area. Our main office is located in Springfield, Illinois, with satellite offices in Jacksonville and Taylorville, Illinois, and you can find out more about our services at our website at prairiecasa.org. This program is supported by a grant from the Illinois Department of Public Health and the Illinois Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Points of view or opinions contained in this program are those of Prairie Center Against Sexual Assault and our guests and do not necessarily reflect the official positions or policies of these grantors. Thank you for listening.